Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. As regular listeners will know, this podcast is all about hearing from those people who get up each day and make this country work, uh, supporting their staff, clients, and um, being innovative and showcasing strong leadership and ingenuity across all that they do. And today I'm joined by Daryl Vince, OBE, founder of Ecotricity and chairman of Forest Green Rovers. He really epitomizes everything that it means to be a forward-thinking leader. And I'd really like to take a moment just to thank you ever so much for taking so much time out of your day to uh, uh, to come and join us, especially at such an important uh, time, you know, looking ahead to next week uh, when COP26 will be in full swing by the time this releases on Wednesday. But uh, normally we'd start this conversation off by talking about um, business interruption, the impact of COVID and everything like that. But um, if you wouldn't mind, first of all, just giving us a bit of background about what you do and um, uh, where you've come from, that would be great. And we'll go from there. Yeah, cool. Well, I'll start with where I come from because I think that's chronologically uh, more sensible for me. So I'm a former New Age traveler. I spent 10 years, uh, most of the 80s, some of the 90s, living on the road in a variety of trucks uh, trucks and buses and and all kinds of things that I built myself. I became very self-reliant, started using renewable energy at the end of that period, a small windmill. And um, and then I had this moment where I was parked on a windy hill, saw a big wind farm built in Cornwall and thought, you know, I could... I could live this low-impact lifestyle for another 10 years personally, or I could drop back in and try and make a bigger difference. So I set about building a big windmill on a hill outside Stroud in 1991, got that done in 1996. It was a hell of a battle. And um, and a year later, started the world's first green energy company, selling a new kind of electricity, the green kind. And then it all rolled on from there. Uh, we did some pioneering work in big wind and solar. We brought green gas to Britain. And we did all of this because energy was biggest cause of climate emissions in our country. Then went looking for the second and third biggest and found transport and food. So we built Britain's first electric car, the Nemesis, started that project in 2008, then built the electric highway, one of the world's first national charging networks for electric cars that weren't yet really happening, but we wanted to see it happen. We sold that network this year, actually. And and then we um, also did some campaigning work in food for plant-based diets because it's a big driver of the ecological and climate crisis and human health crisis actually that we face. And then all of that work, energy, transport, and food, the big three pillars of our work, has really manifested itself in Forest Green Rovers, a local football club we rescued in 2010, now described by FIFA and the United Nations as the greenest football club on the planet, and through which we've found the most amazing platform for communicating to people. We also make plant-based school dinners for primary schools. We make diamonds from atmospheric carbon. That's our most recent uh, gig. And uh, we make small windmills as well. We've got a whole bunch of other things going on. It's so much. Um, so much all based around this idea of uh, sustainability, environmentalism, and you know, protecting the world that we live in, but also changing the message as to why we should do that as well. It's all about sort of progress for you, and um, you know, not just sticking to the the idea that otherwise the the world's going to end. And can you you know, sort of dive into your to your ethos a little bit more as to to why um, you want to go around and um, you know, sort of help build these ecological programs. Mm. Well, I guess I'm um, an environmentalist by nature. I've been concerned about sustainability since I was a kid. I, I wondered about where all the oil came from in the early 70s and when it was going to run up, and nobody talked about it. So that's mm. been with me kind of like all my life, probably. And um, 
you know, I think um, communication you touched on just there, I think the key is how we talk about this stuff because too often the climate, the environment, uh, even wildlife, they're seen as costs that we have to bear. Our chancellor this week, you know, clearly sees environment programs as a cost, not an investment, when when in fact it's the opposite. You know, the new industrial revolution that is, is before us is the green one. We've had the old one, which has caused so many problems of the world, the mass burning of fossil fuels and the intensive agriculture of animals, actually. And um, we have to move away from that. And we have everything we need to do that. We have the technology, we have the the ecological imperative, the climate crisis, uh, and, and all manner of other things. And we know that it's cheaper to avoid all of these things and have a green economy than not to. Was, I mean, Lord Stern, that very uh, serious economist, uh, you know, popped up this week to talk about his study, first published 15 years ago, so it's going to be far cheaper to avoid this and actually try to live with the consequences. You know, So the environment in, in my lifetime has gone from being something that um, – was a good cause that, you know, we should be doing. Some people got that, most people didn't. It's something that actually is becoming mainstream. It's a sensible way to approach things. You know, it's a business. Uh, it's about uh, sustainable economies. You know, it's, it's just like it's going mainstream. It's, yeah, it's really important to think of it in that, that style, isn't it? You know, changing it from being the cost to being the investments. It's what drives progress um, in many cases. And it seems what's driven a lot of, you know, the the changes that you've made radically as well, um, you know, bringing in the electric superhighway, uh, having the imperative to build a, uh, an electric car, um, you know, with that going, you know, very much going to be an important pillar, given the fact that transport is, you know, 27% of our um, um, carbon emissions, you know, changing that is going to be vitally important going forwards. But, you know, with sort of COP26 coming up, do you think that there is the political will as well? Or do you think that this is going to be something that's going to have to be thrown out from, from grassroots? There clearly is not the political will. You can see that. Um, we're getting the right words, of course, from government. Johnson said it's easy being green. Just a couple of weeks ago, he said that to the United Nations. He called on the world to do more and all that kind of stuff, which is pretty rich coming from our government. You've got to just look at the recent record. They're allowing a new coal mine to be opened in Cumbria, the first in Britain uh, what, since the 80s or the 90s, mm. you know, which is an incredible anti-climate thing to do. At the same time as we're banging on to China about using less coal, how can that make sense? We've got a 20 billion road program that came out of the budget just this week, a cut on domestic flying tax and petrol and diesel as well. I mean, these are, again, anti-climate measures. We've got renewed investment in further exploration of the North Sea for fossil fuels that we just can't afford to burn. And at the same time, no support for green measures. We still put VAT on solar panels at 20% for home use, and we put VAT on coal for burning at home at 5%. Our whole economy is rigged against renewable energy and this green economy we need to build. And our government says one thing and does something completely different. And do you think there's going to be any surprises over the coming weeks? Or do you think that this is, given the budget that was released uh, just this week, that this is the, the way forwards from, from here on in for the next few years and that is just going to be sort of a bit of hot air, as it were? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's greenwash. You know, um, it's, it's not very different to Cameron when he was prime minister. You know, he, he got elected as the husky hugger, if you remember. He, <laughs> he travelled to the Arctic, got himself photographed holding a husky and when he was in office he shut down the onshore wind industry and the solar industry uh, he called this stuff green crap and he stuck a carbon tax on green energy which is just incredible and if you're a big user of fossil fuels you don't pay a carbon tax none of that makes any sense so i mean this is how the tories deal with green issues they talk a good game 
and uh, you know then pull in the opposite direction. And I don't see that changing. And is it going to affect um, the way that you're running your businesses? Um, you know, the way that you're sort of looking ahead, given some of the the chaos at the moment around um, gas prices, heating homes, obviously the Insulate Britain protests that are going on. Um, you know, it should put you in a, in a great position to change this conversation. But do you think you're going to have that opportunity? Well, I think that's the position we've been in since we started. You know, when we began, uh, you know, we were the first company in the world to sell green electricity. So, you know, we've always been in that position of, of trying to persuade others that we need to change what we do and, and that kind of stuff. It's not really any different now, except that the background has changed. You know, the world has woken up to the fact that we need to fight the climate crisis. Uh, carbon targets first came in in 1997 at 10% for the world, 10% cut. And today, everybody talks about 100% cuts, even though it's too late, 40 years from now, and there are no policies to deliver it. But we've come an awful long way. But our role is still the same, to be here saying, no, this is how it works. We've shown how it works, and we need to get on and do this. Yeah, and uh, what do you need to be able to do that, really? Is it um, you know, more investment? Is it easing of planning? Is it you know, just people changing their minds and not thinking that the windmill over the hill is an eyesore? Well, I think people are with us. You know, Increasingly, people want to see something done about the climate crisis. Recent polls for the government show that. Uh, businesses are with that. You know, They're introducing green products and services because their customers want it. They can see that. The rise of plant-based foods in the last couple of years shows you that. They're everywhere. Electric cars were 40% of all car sales in August this year. Um, you know, This stuff is happening at that level between people and businesses. What is not happening at is the level of politics. We don't have politicians that get it and or are prepared to do something about it. And you mentioned greenwashing before, and obviously we do see an awful lot of organisations putting forward their sustainability measures, their green credentials, changing their um, marketing and their media to reflect environmentalism around sort of key times as of now. But is that not sometimes, you know, not actually the fact? You know, greenwashing has been around since green has been around. You know, when we started in 1996, it was only about a year or two before the greenwashing started, you know, the paler versions of that. And that's fine. I, I see it as um, as a sign of success, actually. Nobody would greenwash if green wasn't an important issue. So I'm okay with that. We can call it out. And actually, people increasingly can spot that for themselves. And I think that's fine. This is all about progress. And I think greenwashing is a sign of progress. That's fine. And, you know, I've read your book, uh, Manifesto. It was incredibly well written a really interesting look at not only your life but also your vision but one of the main things that stood out for me whilst um throughout one of the pages was you talking about an independent adjudicator for um politics politicians and making sure that people stick to their word and that these things have oversights um if anybody knows their sort of classical political uh, ideologies it's very much rousseauian but um uh you know is that actually, you know, legitimate? Is that something that can be done? And would that not mean that there was, um, you know, too much power in an independent body to, to uh, you know, make sure that people were, you know, following through essentially? Well, I think it would be important that we got the balance right, but we don't have a balance at the moment. And maybe the best example is during the Brexit referendum campaign when we had that bust with the 350 uh, was it billion, I don't know, million, yeah. Yeah, that one, you know, on the side of the it was It was a lie. In fact, it was a lie. And, you couldn't have made an advert that way under the auspices of the ASA because they require you to have evidence to back up the claims that you make. Mm -hmm. And there was no evidence to back up that claim. In fact, you know, it was manifestly a false claim. So that's my best example, that that shouldn't have been allowed to happen. 
no, that's uh, you know really important one. There's something that's always going to be spoken about, isn't it? That is a going to be in textbooks for years for students of uh, uh, political theory and um, you know political campaigning, really. But um, uh, you know, it's interesting still at the moment the talk about energy security um you know and changing that conversation a lot of the time we look at energy as something that is you know magic it just comes out when you turn on the uh, turn on the lights the grid is there um and you know we we pay our bills but looking at the the collapse of, of gas at the moment with gas companies sorry at the moment with rising prices um you know how would you go around making sure that the uk has a you know a, a consistent energy supply would that be completely renewables would it be nuclear would it be um you know a, a wholesale change to the way we do things or you know carry on as is um <clears throat> so i'd keep the nuclear that we have and transition completely to green energy we have enough wind and sun to make all the electricity we need and we have enough grass to make all the gas we need and we have a smart grid concept that you know is already happening in our country uh, we can add hydrogen to the mix to blend in the gas grid, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All of the technology we need is there. The resource we need is there. Um, and, and all we really need is the political will to do that. And we've been saying during this energy crisis that the only way to properly solve it, because it happens every winter, every three or four mm -hmm. years or something like that, the only way to properly solve it is to become energy independent. And government have actually been using this language themselves, which may or may not be a good sign. But at the moment, we're utterly dependent on the global market for fossil fuels uh, to run our country. Mm. And um, we're not just dependent on that for the supply of fossil fuels itself, which is bad enough, but for the price. Because 50% of our gas at the moment as a country comes from our North Sea. And now the price of that went up fivefold this year, mm. but the price of extracting it did not. It only went up because the global market went up. So it's not just about the fossil fuels we buy from that market. It's about how it affects the price of the fossil fuels that we arguably own already in the North Sea. Mm. So we've got to break that link. It's a kind of ultra-capitalist global market in energy that is, well, is trashing our economy. You know, pre-crisis, yeah. we were spending £50 billion a year bringing fossil fuels here just to burn them. Mm. That's a billion a week, three times the lie on the side of that Brexit bus, but real. And we've been arguing that instead of talking about fighting the climate crisis with green energy and all that kind of good stuff, altruistic stuff, we should pivot this argument and say this is about energy independence, this is about getting ourselves off that global roller coaster of energy prices which, which wrecks our economy and it sucks 50, million, 50 billion out sorry, a year pre-crisis but because the price of oil and gas fluctuates so wildly it can easily be 150 billion a year which it is right mm -hmm. now in fact and we have to pay for it in dollars, it's a foreign currency, we have an exchange risk, all of this just fundamentally weakens our economy, we can create hundreds of thousands of jobs here, all of the energy we need here, and we can have price stability. We never need to have price shocks again. That's energy independence. Yeah. And, you know, something that, again, it needs to be stressed that energy independence equals a, a stronger nation, um, a, a, you know, more robust economic nation and somebody and a nation that can actually, you know, have good technologies and be a world leader, as you say, have that next industrial revolution again, focused on on Britain and, and um, you know, Britain's place in the world as it currently stands in our, our confused way. But um, um you know, given the fact that it is sort of COP26 next week or starting on Sunday, sorry, by the time this is released, um, what would be your ideal outcome? What is it that you would want um, from world leaders next week as a 
commitment as a you know an idea a way forward um in sort of an ideal world but also potentially a realistic one well i think somebody needs to set the pace probably we're seeing all of the uh NDCs, these kind of national um, plans that are coming forward at the moment. Australia released one this week. We released one last week. They're rubbish. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we need is somebody to take leadership and say, this is what we're going to do about it and set the pace. I think that we won't get what we need out of COP26. I think that's highly likely, but we haven't done the groundwork. You know, as the host, we've been doing nothing for six months. <laughs> we only just released our own plan last week. I mean, come on. And, and you know, and our government are also telling us, oh, it's going to be difficult. We're probably going to fail. You know that we're going to fail when they say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be really disappointing. But my hopes are pinned on the U.S. and the EU. These are serious players. These are grown-ups in the world of politics. They grasp this climate crisis. They get the economic opportunity, and they're going to do serious things about it. I hope one of them lands a proper zero-carbon NDC and sets the pace. Well, that's you know quite interesting and very different to uh, to what I hear. That you're hopeful that the U.S. is going to be the one that um, you know actually sort of leads the way and you know changes its position. You know, you look at internal U.S. politics right now, and again, it's it's even more um, you know sort of stressed than as. But um, hopefully, that will that will come true, and uh, there is a, a major player that pushes the way forwards. But you know, it's as regular listeners again will know, this podcast isn't just about the um, you know the, the 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 events of the day. It's not just about business. It's also about leadership. It's also about the people that drive organisations, and you know sometimes some of the mistakes that they've made. And Dale, would you mind just you know giving us an overview of, of how you lead your companies, what style of leader you are, and potentially sort of a tip for those that are listening to sort of grow themselves. I guess uh, you know I'm an accidental leader. I never set out to be one, but I've just grown this. Uh, this bunch of companies from an environment uh, perspective using business as a tool from the mid-90s uh, to try and bring change to the world. And I found myself as a, a leader of ultimately a team of 750 people, and that's been a kind of long progressive journey. But we have something that I think is fundamentally important here, which is an ethos, an ecotricity ethos, and we share it with everybody that joins us uh, as a company, and it's only one side of A4, and it just sets out uh, how we expect people to be, how we are ourselves, you know, and that is that we treat everybody the same. Um, we look to have peer-to-peer relationships with our customers, with our fellow workers, with our suppliers, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It's about not talking up. It's about not talking down. It's about being open and honest all the time. Admit mistakes by all means, because what matters most is what you do about them, not the fact that you made a mistake. And that's what we encourage, that kind of attitude and that kind of culture and that's the starting place for everybody joins our company that's um, a really great thing to hear uh you know having that um you know communication that's set in stone that um, you know people are going to be respected within the workplace and um, i'm sure people can take that on board and think about their own sort of way that they uh, want to bring people in and uh, and look at it so so thanks for thanks for that but um you know there's been a few sort of changes amongst your organization or a few things that you're looking ahead to do um you know obviously burning gas uh burning grass sorry to make a you know renewable form of, of natural gas um carbon capture and, and turning them into diamonds um you know some of these things seem like they are science fiction but um you know how do you get these ideas and uh, and, and how realistic are they on a sort of larger scale uh well how I get them is just by thinking a lot. Um, that's, that's my nature. And um, how, are they realistic on a large scale? Absolutely. 
I don't know where to start. I'm going to start with diamonds. So making diamonds in the lab itself is relatively modern tech. There's been a new way to do it for about five years, which is better than the old way. And we began our journey, our R&D journey, about seven years ago after I'd had the idea, the mad idea, really, that it might be possible to take carbon from the atmosphere and turn it into diamonds. Diamonds are, of course, made only of carbon. Mm. But I was thinking about carbon capture and realized it was only half the battle. We have to lock it into something enduring in order to complete the job. And I thought, what's more enduring than a diamond? Probably nothing. And so we started doing that seven years ago. This new tech came along in parallel. We completed that uh, ourselves probably about two years ago. We've been making diamonds for two years. We launched the concept last November with my book. And uh, we've just been perfecting everything, moving from R&D into pre-production. And, and our, our website goes live uh, while COP is on, actually, mm. for retail of diamonds for the first time. And we're making um, the most amazing stones. They're, they're among the 1% uh, of, in, ter in terms of quality, the top 1% of all mined stones, we're making uh, exactly that. And... And our big argument is that we don't need to mine the earth anymore because we can mine the sky. Take something we have too much of, carbon dioxide, and turn it into something that we quite like to have. And if you look at the impact of diamond mining, it's colossal. I mean, mm -hmm. literally, you see the holes from orbit are that big. And when you look at the carbon impact, a one-carat um, diamond mined from the earth requires the digging of 1,100 tons of rock mm -hmm. to make a fifth of a gram, which is one carat of stone. And it's half a ton of greenhouse gas and about 5,000 liters of water. You get an awful lot of pollution. About 30 tons of toxic heavy metals mm -hmm. are in that rock that's dug up. And, of course, you get social problems as well, uh, you know, that, are, that the diamond industry is quite famous for. Um, but it's an old way of doing things. And so how practical is it to do this completely? It, it, it absolutely is. You know, we, we just don't need to mine the earth anymore. We can mine the sky, enough said. Uh, green gas. We've got enough grass in Britain to make enough gas to power all of our homes. It's as simple as that. We need two-thirds of all grazing land that currently produces just 15% of, of, uh, of the meat made in Britain. So that means we need a 10% reduction in meat consumption. Um, mm. But the government's Climate Change Committee and others are saying that we need to reduce meat consumption by 30% anyway yeah. to meet mm -hmm. our climate targets. We're well under that. We need 1% a year for 10 years to do this green gas program. Mm. And in the last 10 years, red meat consumption fell 30% anyway, so we're well below the background trend. So it's totally achievable in terms of uh, diet change and land use change. We have enough land, we have the technology, we have a gas grid, crucially. Uh, and the government at the moment plan for us all to have heat pumps, which means throwing away the gas grid and having a massive upgrade in the electricity grid and producing six times as much uh, electricity in the winter as we do now, which is just madness, mm. having higher energy bills as well. You know, there's nothing right about the heat pump program. We've, we've put out some stats about that. But anyway, to answer to your question, both of these are properly doable at scale. That's it's incredible. You know, mine the sky rather than mine the ground. And you know, one thing we didn't even touch on with the uh, the issues of mining is obviously biodiversity loss, and that's uh, uh, the knock on repercussions of that when it comes to the environmental perspective as well. But um, uh, you know, these are two just incredibly exciting um you know pieces of technology and, and companies that you're you know launching and, and going forward with and i'm really looking forward to to seeing the uh the sky diamond take um take effect and hopefully um grow but um i 
for again for regular listeners they'll know that myself and my colleague Scott Chaloner we take um you know duties on the podcast we have our, our favorite um you know areas that we want to talk about um and unfortunately Scott couldn't speak today because he is a Port Vale fan um and so <laughs> I just want to turn to Forest Green Rovers and the the revolution that you're putting on within within sports and um you know how is that going the the you know it's it's the the communications around the club are amazing the club itself is is going to new heights and um again un- unfortunately for port vale but um you know what's the the next step well i just want to say that i'm also a port vale fan the people that rescued the club or took it over a couple of years ago i think they're fantastic people and just what football needs so uh, you know i'm with scott on that and and i don't think our success is unfortunate for port vale i think they're doing incredibly well i think they're you know just a few points behind us yep. in third place or something like that you know and of course three clubs in this league go up automatic so you know they're right where they want to be i imagine um football has just been the most amazing channel for us in terms of communicating we never expected it uh, you know we rescued our local football club in 2010 and didn't put any thought into that. It was just a rescue mission and immediately bumped into all kinds of things that had to change and realized we'd, in effect, be building a green football club and be talking to a very different audience with our ecological message and that that might be challenging and that we might reach the wider world of sport itself. All of that came to be, and our fans are completely on board. We've got fan groups in 20 different countries of the world. We work with the United Nations on a global version of what we do called uh, Sport for Climate Action, and, you know, the, the whole thing has been beyond my most wild imaginations. And I have a pretty vivid one. Yes, <laughs> most definitely from the way that, uh, you know, you've managed to, to overcome and adapt. But, um, you know, you're right. I'm sure Scott will uh, be glad to hear that, um, you know, you're a Port Vale fan as well. But, um, you know, hopefully it will, will do some good for, for everybody across the entirety of sport, not just within you know, sort of British football, thinking of things differently. Um, and, you know, we're coming to the end of our recording time now. You know, it's been a really interesting conversation looking at, uh, you know, the politics, the the tech, your own leadership style. But, you know, I'm going to give you the opportunity for put a call to action out to listeners. Um, what do, would you like to see people doing? And, um, you know, what are the, the, the changes that they can make in, the, in their daily lives to sort of get on board and, and help with the, um, you know, make the environmental conscious choice? Oh, cool. Thank you for that. Well, look, I would say there are actually only three things that you really need to worry about. You know, forget the bombardment that we all have with the competing issues and and priorities and that kind of stuff. Look at energy, transport, and food. Look at how you power yourself, how you travel, and what you eat, either personally or as a business. It's the same thing. 80% of your carbon footprint is in just those three things where spending decisions made every day are determining which way the world goes around. So change that. Energy, transport, and food. Brilliant. Dale, thank you ever so much uh, for coming on today. Um, Again, really interesting conversation. I'm sure a lot of people will take a lot from this, but um, thank you and and goodbye. My pleasure.